Can you believe we're back round to March? The last time we saw each other physically face to face. I mean, it's just crazy that it's nearly been a year since that. I guess the one positive about us moving into March is that this is an absolutely bumper month for international elections, isn't it? Indeed, it is going to be fun and March Madness has just begun. So therefore, I think we better get started. It's Saturday, the 6th of March, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Sam. Hey Sam, how's everything going? Yeah, it's going well. It's uh, nice to be back in London, um, but yes, we're still hoping for some COVID restrictions to be removed as soon as possible. Oh, the great reopening is starting, isn't it? It really is. I cannot wait. <laughs> anyway, as the great reopening begins in March, around the world as well, for listeners who do not know, this promises to be an absolutely jam-packed month full of elections, from state elections in Australia and Germany to national elections in the Netherlands and Israel. And we will be covering all of them here on this podcast over the next couple of weeks. So Sam, which election are you most looking forward to? So I think actually the one I'm most looking forward to because I'm most interested to see the fallout from is actually not a national election. It's something we're going to talk about today, which is the German state elections, purely because I think the consequences of the results that take place there could determine who heads the CDU-CSU ticket going into the federal election in the autumn, and therefore who is likely to be the next German chancellor, which is probably the most significant political role in Europe at the moment, to be honest. So for me, because of the potential consequences of it, those ones are most interesting for me. How about you? I think that's really interesting. Yes, certainly Germany will have wider ramifications, uh, which we'll talk about once we know the results in a couple of weeks' time. But for me, I think the one that I'm looking forward to actually is the, well, the one person I'm interested in is the Western Australia state election because that could be a forerunner for what could potentially happen late in the year because it's the final litmus test for the parties to refine their campaigning and their tactics um, heading into uh, heading into uh, the second half of the year where there could be a possible federal election. And as we're about to discuss, it's been an utterly bizarre election tactic employed, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I noticed we've both picked sub-national elections, which is fun. But we're going to be talking about one big national election today, aren't we? Yes, and let's get started. Well, today we'll be previewing the Netherlands election due to take place on Wednesday the 17th of March. The incumbent Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, who has been in power since 2010, will be seeking to win a fourth term in office. We will set up the scene of the upcoming elections and talk about Dutch politics in general. But first, Sam, you're looking at other elections that's taking place a week today, roughly, isn't it? Yes. So I've been looking at the Western Australian election that we mentioned at the top of the show. Next Saturday, the 13th, Western Australia will be heading to the polls for the first Australian state election of 2021, ahead of the federal election, which is officially due next year. But as I think we'll probably discuss, this could potentially be a good indicator of the state of politics in advance of a potential early election, should Scott Morrison choose to trigger it. The Premier, Mark McGowan, is seeking a second four-year term after his Labour Party's resounding victory four years ago, which was actually the largest majority in Western Australia's parliamentary history. And the Labour Party are once again expected to sweep to victory, with recent polls even suggesting that McGowan's party will actually break their own record from last time and achieve an even larger majority. And last week, we even saw the Liberal Party leader in Western Australia, Zach Kirkup, concede defeat ahead of the election, which is very, very bizarre, is it not? And I think before we preview that election in general, what do you make of that? Well, first of all, you have to understand that in Australia, voting day is, is not limited to one. There's been a heavy subsidence, like in many other countries we talk about this year, about pre-polling. So pre-polling has been open for the last two weeks or so, and a lot of Western Australians have used this opportunity to go and vote early. 
the thing that I did find slightly bizarre is the fact that he conceded defeat even before he launched his own campaign. <laughs> so that's kind of like raising the white flag before the campaign even began, which I think is utterly bizarre. I had a look back and tried to find any um, similarities or any other leaders that opted for this method of conceding defeat even before polls close. And I came across the 2018 Ontario general election when the incumbent premier Kathleen Wynne knew she was going to lose um, because the party that she led, the Ontario Liberals, had been in power since 2003. So by 2018, there was a bit it's time factor. And there were a couple of scandals and broken promises surrounding her government. So she decided to concede defeat. And the net result is that although she still got a shellacking in the polls, she went from 55 seats in the legislature to seven seats. It actually meant that she actually performed slightly better than what the internal tracking showed, which was she was expected to go down to two seats if she didn't concede. So... So and by the concession might be part of the campaign strategy. In a way, it was because it was an acknowledgement of the fact that in the end, decided to reluctantly vote liberal because they were scared of the opponents having an, a blank check as such and therefore being allowed to pass whatever legislation it seeks to wish. Mm-hmm. However, the key difference here is that Ontario doesn't have an upper house as such. But Western Australia has an upper house, which is elected at the same time as the lower house. So if people want a break on the government or are worried about the fact that the government could pass any legislation it sees fit, it could vote Labour to reward its handling of the COVID pandemic in the lower house. But in the upper house, it could then vote somebody, somebody else to try and act as a check and balance. Yeah, and I'm, the Legislative Council there's potentially a Labour majority on the cards if they play it right, because the big problem here is that all of the six regions have equal representation regardless of population. So it's much more difficult for Labour to get the majority there. Indeed. And the way the the six regions set out is that three of them are in Perth, which is the main population centre, and three of them are in the rest of um, Western Australia. And 75% of the population where I live in Perth and Labour tends to do a lot better in Perth being a centre-left party its strength is concentrated in urban areas so therefore um, it is naturally very difficult for the party to gain a majority they currently have 14 seats out of a legislative council of 36 therefore you need 19 seats to gain a majority and if you want to pass constitutional reforms which you would need to change the voting system, a future voting system, you're going to actually need 20 votes because the president of the Legislative Council, which will be Labour, is unable to vote in, on a constitutional matter. So you're going to need an extra vote to compensate. It therefore depends who they take votes from. Because if they take votes from the Greens, you're essentially taking from the left hand and giving it to the right hand because those, they are representing the mm-hmm. same block of reformists in the Legislative Council they're going to have to take votes from a lot of minor right-wing parties, which traditionally do very well in regional areas. And so therefore, that's where the election is interesting. Yeah, I mean, for listeners who maybe don't know much about Australian politics, how would you classify the significance of this election in terms of the Labour Party's fortunes nationally? I know we're going to talk about this um, a bit more next week, but do you think that this will have any impact on the likelihood of Scott Morrison to go to the polls this year? I don't think that it would actually, because even in the last election, and you pointed out that Labour won did very well in the last Western Australian state election. In fact, it won 42% shared the vote in that last election and 41 out of the 59 seats, they went down to 40 because they lost a by-election during the parliamentary term. But in the, in the federal election, despite the fact that the Labour leader, Bill Shorten, put Mark McGowan's face on his bus and tried to latch on to the popularity, um, Labour struggled in Western Australia at the federal election, securing only five seats out of 16 that were available, and with a share of the vote of 30%, which is a big difference from what they got the state election two years ago. And 
Yes, there was a two-year time lapse, but the, in the polling had indicated that at the state level, the McGowan government was traveling quite well at this stage. Yeah, and I mean, was... to me, it's surprising that the Mark McGowan face did not have a bigger impact because in the recent um, approval ratings, he's up at 88%, which for even a state leader in a state that's heavily labor in terms of their, their voting record in Western Australia, that is a phenomenally high approval rating. And I think as well is that Australians are very comfortable at splitting their tickets, which is this idea that at a federal level, you vote for one party and state level, you vote the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is partly because of the dual responsibilities of federal and state government. So for example, our responsibility for hospitals and schools lies mainly at the state level. The federal government is mainly involved in the uh, funding of such mechanisms and therefore if you are uh, if you are very pro public services and center left parties tend to do well when an election is about health or education mm-hmm. but at the federal level most of the elections come down to the economy taxes foreign policy and when is when the elections tend to be fought on that the center right does a little bit better so i think australian voters um, many of them are able to disseminate that at the state level we're voting for a party which can best provide public services Therefore, their votes tend to skew centre-left. But at the federal level, they're quite comfortable with a more right-wing economic cause and therefore will tend to vote centre-right or to the benefit of Scott Morrison's coalition. I see. I mean, we'll be paying close attention to this, as we say, in case there is a federal election later this year. And we will be bringing you the results of the Western Australian election next week, as well as a roundup of the state of Australian politics in general. So we'll be looking forward to that. Um, what have you been following this week, Chen? Well, since you'd indulged me by, for, by talking about Western Australia, I'm going to indulge you by talking about the two German state elections that are coming up next weekend. Um, Baden-Württemberg, I'll, I'll first talk about it. It's slightly unique in the sense that it's the only state with a Greens minister president or prime minister, uh, Winfred Kretschmann, and who has been in power since 2011 and since 2016, a coalition with the CDU. Now, Baden-Württemberg, which is in southern, southern, one of the southernmost states of Germany, is traditional CDU heartland. It governed from continuously from 1953 to 2011. But over the past 10 years or so, it's been kind of engaged in a dogfight with the Greens for control of the state. The 2016 election um, in Baden-Württemberg saw the CDU lose one third of its vote share and dropped to second place behind the Greens in a campaign overshadowed by the migrant crisis, which helped the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, gain 15% share of the vote. So first of all, Sam, why do you think that uh, Berlin-Württemberg, a very rich industrial state, has become so receptive to the Greens provincially, but they can't seem as yet to translate that provincial support federally, a bit like the Labour Party in Western Australia? Yeah, I mean, the Green Party has a long history with Baden-Württemberg, actually, because back in 1980, when the Greens in Germany held their first party conference, it was in the state of Baden-Württemberg that they actually got their first state representation in the election of 1980. Um, So they have a rich history with being particularly strong in this state. And I think more recently, what has benefited the Greens in terms of being able to install them as, their, as, as the leadership and the government in, in this state is that particularly Winfried Kretschmann has been able to master the relationship between environmentalism and industrial policy because Baden-Württemberg is one of the big industrial states in Germany. They have their home to Porsche, Bosch, Mercedes as just a few examples. And he has been able to master communicating directly with them and also trying to marry that with environmental politics. So I think what he's managed to do and what the Green Party there has managed to do is create a green platform that is palatable to people who typically would not be green voters. I think you're right. And the sense that we talked about this idea of a realism among the Greens um, or the conservative Greens and uh, Winfred Kretschmann is definitely one of those. And he and I think he suits the state more. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the federal Greens, which is much more left-wing, can't translate that level of support 
into um, into what he has been able to do because their policy match has been so different. In fact, he even objected to the Greens election platform in 2013 of tax increases. Um, so showing that he is more of a pulse with the state, but still maintaining that strong environmental flavor that characterized Greens politics. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was curious about is that this election, obviously, both state elections took place last time around in the overall context of the migrant crisis, which particularly hurt the CDU last time and benefited the AFD. So this time around, there is no migrant crisis. In fact, the situation is the diametric opposite in the sense that, you know, most borders are shut between countries. So given that, what do you think the how do you think the AFD would do? Would they be able to retain that support as part of a general dissatisfaction with politics? Yeah, I mean, I think they're in a tricky position at the moment because not just borders being closed, but the management of the coronavirus pandemic on the whole in Germany has been reasonably well supported by the public. And the AFD have come out opposed to lots of these changes and actually are promoting the acceleration of the release from lockdown. They, they're actually playing quite a difficult game in terms of politics, because I think there's a natural cap on support when you're challenging the response to the pandemic. So I don't think they, they're going to be able to progress any further from where they were the last time these states went to the polls. I agree. I think they have found a base to support amount the disaffected voters. Ironically, those who probably 10 years ago probably voted somebody like Free Democrat or Greens, actually. Mm-hmm. But as those kind of parties have become more mainstream or been in gov- or have been in government in recent history, both at the provincial and federal level, that support has moved to the AFD. As I mentioned at the top, though, Baden-Württemberg is not the only state going to the polls. The other state is Rylan Palatite, which is actually an SPD-CDU coalition currently, with incumbent Minister-President Mayu Dreher, who is the first woman in the job, and she's been uh, the Minister-President since 2013. Um, she's seeking another term. In the last election, the SPD did very well, actually, increasing their share of the vote marginally which is not that much of a drastic change, certainly compared to Bader Waterberg. And Ryla Palatine is unique in the sense that since 1991, the SPD has controlled the minister-president's office. And they seem to be here capturing provincially a very strong base support, unlike federally, where it's completely fallen off a cliff. So why is that so, do you think? Again, I think it's comp- comparable to Winfried Kretschmann is that Malu Drea is very popular locally. And it's actually one of the few remaining strongholds of the SPD nationally, even on the, even on the state level. Um, but actually, Germans have recently proven quite adept at split ticketing in the same way we were talking about in Australia, because federalism is so deep-rooted in Germany, like um, the states have a lot of independent authority about even things like um, infrastructure, schooling, healthcare, a lot of a lot of key policy issues have evolved. And I think even though the SPD support nationally seems to be falling off a cliff and the Green Party are rising, if a, if a party has proven quite good at managing the state, even on just on the state level, they can retain support even in a situation where nationally the party is not doing particularly well. But contrast that to the United States, because don't forget in the US, federalism is so entrenched there. Mm-hmm. You know, the governors are well known in their states um, and they have lots of power, like in Germany and Australia as well. But yeah, in the US, it's become incredibly polarized in the sense that if you're in California, you're most likely to get a de- you're going to have a Democratic governor for ends and ends. And if you're in Mississippi, you could have a Republican governor mm-hmm. for ends and ends and ends. Why has that polarization nationally, particularly in an era when politics has become very much more nationalized and in a 24 hours news cycle where national leaders tend to dominate, why has there been the same level of ticket splitting provincially in Germany and Western Australia compared to the United States? Well, this doesn't necessarily apply to Australia, but I think it certainly applies to Germany, is that on on the whole, their politics is much more used to cooperation because 
they have to form coalitions, even on the state level and the federal level, to the point where it's even normal for these kind of grand coalitions to form, as is the case at the moment in Rhineland-Palatinate between the CDU and SPD. So for somebody to vote SPD on the state level and vote CDU on the national level, even though one is a centre-left party and one's a centre-right party, is not that unusual. So I think it's much more normal for that to occur in Germany, unlike the United States, where one party will want to control a certain legislative branch on their own. And don't forget, I think in Australia, what really works is that, as I explained earlier, is that voters know the difference. And there's two quite distinct roles between federal and state. Whereas in the United, in the US, I think there's sometimes a bit of a blurring of the relationship that is not particularly set up very fine. But going back to Germany and what which of the two states we looked at, Ryan Palantine and Ben Wurttemberg, which do you think would be a better barometer for how the parties are shaping up in the September elections? Because both of them have two factors which are a bit unique. In Baden-Württemberg, we had the Greens, a popular local Greens leader, who was unlikely to transfer that level of support to the federal, much more left-wing Green Party. Mm -hmm. And the same thing could be argued for in Ryan Palantine with their SPD minister-president. Yeah, I mean, I think naturally Baden-Württemberg is more interesting in terms of the federal election because this the CDU-Green face-off is the kind of face-off we'll be watching out for in the autumn, particularly given the late surge in that state of the Green Party at the expense of the CDU. So if it actually looks like on the national level, we might be seeing that kind of change too, that'll be very interesting. Now, on the national level, the CDU are much further ahead of the Greens. So it's not going to be as close as this. But I think the dynamic between how the two parties not only oppose each other in election, but work together in a government is also key because a CDU Green government nationally is probably one of the more likely outcomes in terms of the autumn federal election as well. Indeed, and I think more and more, in, and Biden-Württemberg is an example where they can both cooperate with each other quite successfully mm -hmm. as well. And maybe that could pose a model for how that could be run federally. I know this is um, such a very bad thing to do as uh, people with like, political science, but care to make predictions about the both state results? I think the overall government outcome will remain the same in both. And I also think that the CDU will happen to finish second in both of them. I think the SPD will just edge it out in Rhineland-Palatinate. And I think the Greens will be a bit further ahead of the CDU than the SPD are in there. But in Baden-Württemberg, I think the Greens will also come out on top. So I agree with you. I think the Greens will be ahead of the CDU by a little bit of a distance in Bayern and Wartenberg. I think in Brian Ryland Palante, it's a very close run thing. Yeah. I think the SCDU might just edge it because I think the overall COVID environment and we're all vote and you can't ignore COVID. Um, and as we talked about many times on this podcast, might mean the CDU might finish one seat ahead. It's interesting that you bring up COVID and the CDU because in recent weeks, particularly in the last week, the Christian Democrats nationally have received a lot of bad press on their COVID response and particularly the vaccine rollout being a bit jolted, recently having to U-turn on the policy to stop using AstraZeneca vaccine for over 65s. Well, it's um, it, with only a week to go, there's, we won't have to wait very long to that, find out the outcome. And on that note, I think this is a good time to pause and be right back after this. So welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. As we said at the top of the show, this week we'll be focusing on the Netherlands, who will be holding their national elections on the 17th of March. Dutch voters will be going to the polls to elect the House of Representatives, which will go on to form the next government. And Mark Rutter, who's been the Prime Minister since 2010, is hoping to lead his VVD party to a fourth straight election win and go on to lead the formation of the next government, which, as I'm sure we'll talk about, is not necessarily the most straightforward thing. So we thought we would take this opportunity to preview the upcoming election, talk about what's at play in the campaign so far, 
and discuss more widely the state of Dutch politics and what makes it so unique. So I think we should start potentially with the last election to set the scene for where we're going into this into this 2021 cycle. So Dutch governments rarely serve a full term. We saw 2012 to 2017 and 1998 to 2002, and this one was no exception. The last election in 2017 saw immense fragmentation of the vote, with Rutter's party actually topping the poll with just over 21% of the vote, which for a party topping the poll is extremely small. And both the governing parties at the time going into the election fared incredibly badly, especially the Dutch Labour Party, which I think we'll talk about quite a lot today. If we look now to where we're going in terms of this 2021 cycle and looking back to 2017, for people who maybe don't know much about the Netherlands and their politics, what would you say are the headline features of their elections which make them unique and a brief outline of how these members are elected, because it's quite a special electoral system. When I say when you say set special, it is because of the fact that it is openless PR and the effective meant that the um, the country is divided into twenty regional constituencies uh, for the purpose of electoralists, and but functionally functionally is treated as a single constituency at a national level. And essentially means that the electoral threshold to get is 0.67%. That's incredibly small and has meant that particularly when bigger parties are weaker, you have a lot of parties elected to parliament, as we saw in the last election. We saw a total of 13 political parties elected. And it is just amazing that it took a four-party coalition of the uh the, the Rutas VVD party, the CDA, the Christian Democratic Appeal, which has traditionally dominated Dutch politics until recently, the centrist Democrat 66 and the Christian Union to form a bare majority government, 76 out of 150, and 38 seats out of 75 in the Senate. And over this last term, it actually fell to a minority in the Senate. They lost six, the coalition lost six seats in the Senate, to fall to minority status after the 2019 Senate elections. And in the House, um, there was a member, Vibrant Van Hager, who was expelled from the VVD caucus, which meant that the government lost its majority in the lower house as well. The, and it should be said that earlier this year, as we previewed on an earlier podcast, the go- whole government fell, not as a result of a policy pro- policy in this term of government, but Sam, in the last term of government, isn't it? When during 2012 to 2017. Yeah, and I mean, quickly before I talk about that, I think it's just crazy to think that the a coalition with four parties in, which includes the party that won the election and the party that came third and fourth, can't even get to a majority of seats. That is just crazy. So yeah, I, as you said, the Rutter government resigned just a, a few months ago. Um, because of a scandal that had taken place, particularly involving the Labour minister. And I think what's remarkable, actually, is just how little that scandal has affected Mark Rutter and his party standing in the polls, and even the Labour Party to a certain extent. I mean, they're performing quite woefully compared to the position they were in even a decade ago. But this scandal coming to light and the government having to resign, the Labour Party leader resigning as well, has not necessarily affected the poll standings on the whole at all, has it? No, and I think let's. I think what's very interesting is let's just look at the Dutch Labour Party because it's been really the last ten years has been a horror show for the Dutch Labour Party. There's no, there's no other way to say it. In 2012, they had 25 percent shared the vote and 38 seats, which is pretty good. But just one term, full term in government, they then went from 38 seats to a grand total of nine. And their share of the vote fell from 25%, as I said earlier, to 6% share of the vote. It was so bad that it failed to win a single municipality for the first time in the party's history. So that's how bad the 2017 election was. But what I think is even more tragic from that point of view is that you're clearly working off quite a low base, isn't it? If you lost... 
29 seats and saw your share of the vote become about 20% of what it was in the last election. But if you look at the opinion polls, they are probably going to get about, at the very least, 10 seats to at the very maximum 13. And their share of the vote is hovering around 8%. So they've only really marginally increased their share of the vote from their horror show four years ago, which I think points to a broader malaise within the Dutch Labour Party, really, because one election you can excuse as potentially being um, in government with the centre-right, and as we mentioned many times, junior coalition parties, as the Dutch Labour Party was, tend to suffer. But they've had four years in opposition now, and them doing only marginally better than their 2017 performance, I think speaks volumes, really, of where the state of the party really is. Yeah, I mean, we've talked quite a bit in recent weeks about how particularly uh, centre-left social democratic politics has been on the decline around Europe more generally. But even in countries where that's pretty stark, like Germany is one example where the SPD are now polling in third place and they used to be one of the big titans of German politics. It's not as extreme as this. So do you think this is part of that trend or do you think there's something more profound going on? I think that is part of the trend, but I think what has happened is that in the Netherlands, because of the fact that the memories are much more fresh of the Labour Party, it could therefore take a long time to recover. Particularly the scandal which fell the Rutte government in January, which was leading to child benefit payments, if I'm correct, Mm -hmm. which is a traditional centre-left issue and one in which the Labour Party should theoretically be its its ace in the hole. And yet it... It, it, it screwed up that program. So therefore, it lost a lot of credibility in an issue in which you're supposed to perform very strongly in. And that didn't help, I feel. But like you said, what's interesting, therefore, is that the Dutch Labour Party's problems have lasted throughout the parliamentary year. They haven't crashed since the scandal broke in early January. They have just polled at a very poor level throughout the year, throughout this entire last four years. So one thing we did see in 2017 was the growing strength of Gerd Fielders' far-right um, PVV party. And I wonder if that plays a role here as well, because it ended up being that the main battle in the Netherlands was between Mark Rutte's like, almost pure centrism, about as centrist as you can be, versus the far-right, rather than the typical battle between the centre-left and the centre-right, because we've also seen they, they haven't fallen to the same depths, but the Christian Democrats, the centre-right party, who used to govern pretty regularly in the late 20th century. So do you think there's been a general realignment of where the ideological battle takes place? I think, the, I think you're right to a certain extent it is. And we talked about this also being another symptom of personality politics, because I think people just like Mark Rutte centre-right voters tend to like Mark Rutte. And so therefore, I think a lot of people who would be Christian Democrat voters have moved across to vote for Rutte's VVD party. And the extent to which it has become more rusted on VVD voters, or because of only Mark Rutte they're voting for, rather than party's policies, unfortunately will not be seen this election because Mark Rutte's on the ballot. It might only be seen when his name is no longer on the ballot to find out whether it's a broad ideological shift or one because based on the personality of Mark Rutte. I think that's hard to tell at this stage. Yeah, I think that's a very excellent point, actually. Um, And we'll be talking about Mark Rutte a bit later on. Um, But back to the 2021 election, Get Wilders' party is still a major player here. But do you think, like we were talking about in Germany with the AFD, the environment he's operating in makes it very difficult for his party to have an argument or to progress from 2017? What I think is very interesting, though, is that Geert Wilders has, throughout this parliamentary term, seen a wildly fluctuating fortunes. Throughout the middle of the term, it really looked like the party was on the nosedive because of the rise of the Forum of Democracy, which is kind of a similar far-right party. Mm-hmm. But it, as we discussed in one of the earlier podcast episodes, the party imploded, and there's no other way of saying it, a couple of months ago. And their leader, Thierry Baudet, uh, resigned as leader and with it went the majority of support for the party. And a lot of that support has, in I think, transferred directly 
back to the PVV, uh, get Wilders' party. So I think they're polling roughly the same. It therefore means that I think in the Netherlands, it's kind of like a stable vote for the far right at the moment mm-hmm. um, for one party to take rather than two. So therefore only having one player in the far right space rather than two benefits uh, Geert Wilders massively. There's no other way of saying it. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting in my point of view that there is a pool of support for the far right mm. that doesn't seem to have dissipated despite the fact they're not in government and they and there's been a rally around the flag effect, really. Yeah, I mean, I think what is really interesting is, and I'm looking at historic polling from, from across this parliament right now, is that if you look back to early 2020, so pre-pandemic, you had Mark Rutter and Gert Wilders' party basically on a virtual tie. So do you think COVID is also playing a role in the ability of not just Mark Rutter's party to sustain quite a large lead, but also the Gert Wilders' party to only progress slightly, even in an environment where other parties are declining? I think you're right. COVID has played a role. And Mark Rutte being the leader of the government, as we talked about many times, you know, all the press conferences that they do, being the face of it, has benefited the VVD. But like I said, it's not a straight switch from Mark Gert Wilders' voters no. to Mark Rutte's voters. In fact, voters. I think Gert Wilders is projected to increase his share of the vote from last time, just as Mark Rutte is. Exactly. So, so it, it, it will be very interesting as well whether, whether such increases in seats might make um, Mark Rutte's task of forming a government easier and have more parliamentary buffer, unlike buffer, like unlike last time where he barely scraped across the line. We should point out as well, though, that because of the fragmentation of Dutch politics, because of the electoral system, only 0.67% nationally to get one seat, that because you have so many more parties competing, it therefore means that even if you get the same share to vote now as compared to 10 to 15 years ago, you might not necessarily get the same number of seats purely because there's so many more parties competing right now. Yeah, and that's I think that's definitely going to disadvantage Mark Russell's party. I know we're going to be talking about this when we end up getting the results from 2021, but do you have any early thoughts on where this where the government might fall? Do you think we might end up with a similar coalition formed or do you think there might be newer parties involved? Well, the problem is that Mark Rutte has proven himself ideologically very flexible. I mean, from 2010 to 2012, he teamed up the far right. Gerd Wilders' party yeah. went into government in 2012, and they um, and 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 the Christian Democrats followed along as well. Um, I should point out that Gerd Wilders didn't do very well in the 2012 elections. Actually, um, his PhD lost nine seats there. So therefore, I think I wonder whether. That like, as we talked about in many other European countries, where the far right tends to do better when they're not in government, mm-hmm. but can still throw the influence around um, by being outside, really, and making a lot of noise and drawing attention to their issues. I think that is the method in which far right has the far right parties have to operate, really, which if you're an office seeking politician, it's kind of not your main game, isn't it, Sam? No, no. <laughs> But I think this this 2021 cycle in the Netherlands will be a, really interesting to watch for many reasons, not least because if Mark Rutte goes on to continue to be prime minister, at least for a couple of years, he will become the longest serving prime minister in Dutch history, overtaking Ruud Lubbers, who was prime minister between 1982 and 1994. And I think, as you said, it's really interesting that the far right is managing to maintain support and, in fact, advance support, even in the context of pandemic, which is actually quite different to what's going on in other countries we've discussed in recent weeks, where that that kind of populist far right has a natural cap to it. And actually, their, their ability to progress in the current time has actually been quite limited. So I think that's very interesting. I would like to talk about the Dutch Labour Party for a minute. And I think and if you look at the polls recently, as we discussed a bit earlier on, they're not expected to do very well. And it seems as if that most of their votes have gone to two slightly, um, two parties. The Greens have benefited from them, undoubtedly, and the Socialist Party. 
do you think how from the Dutch Labour Party's point of view, who had to just recently appoint a new leader, how can they win back support from other left-wing voters, really? Yeah, I mean, I think they're in a tricky position. And part of it comes from the fact that in a proportional system, it doesn't necessarily matter which left-wing party you vote for because your vote is less likely to become wasted. So one big thing that centre-left parties are able to do across Europe is just say, well, if you want a centre-left party in government or a left-wing party in government, you've got to vote for us because we're the natural catch-all party and we're the most likely to actually defeat the right or the centre-right. And in the Netherlands, that's a really difficult argument to make because you votes aren't wasted in the same way. And I think what happens here when you have Mark Rutte's party, who's, as you said, quite ideologically flexible in recent years, but also markets themselves as like an archetypal centrist party, being like a lukewarm centre-left party that's just slightly more left-wing than Mark Rutte's is not really an argument that flies very well, I think, in an, in an environment where you can vote for your key ideological preference. So then parties like the Green Party, who are left-wing but also have environmentalism, and then parties like the Socialist Party, who are just actually left-wing, not, not centre-left, then it's very difficult for you to identify a USP because people don't have to vote for you because the electoral system makes them want to vote for you. And they don't have to vote for you ideologically because they could vote for something more centrist that's actually in government, or they could vote for something more left-wing. I think that's really interesting. And you're right. It therefore makes the Dutch Labour Party's position even more perilous at this stage. And obviously, the scandal does not help. No, it does not. I think what Mark Rutter has been quite effective in doing, even even if he's not necessarily been doing this by design is assigning the scandal to the Labour Party because it was a Labour minister in charge of it. The Labour Party are not in government. And he's managed to pin this scandal on the Labour Party, even though it was his government now that the Labour Party are not even involved in, that exposed the scandal and took responsibility for it in resigning. So I think it's somehow, it's some sort of political strategy masterstroke that has managed to make it that a scandal that occurred that was at least revealed in an administration that a certain party wasn't involved in, they've still taken the fall for it. You're right. I think resigning is actually a really interesting thing. And you're right. I think that did help shield some of the blame that would have been directed Mark Rutte's way. And I think what it also did was that it was essentially a non-move because Dutch people are very used to their governments, as we described at the top of the programme, not lasting the full term. Mm. So if your government resigned and it went into caretaker mode, It'll be, it'll be greeted with a shrug of shoulders and so what? Yeah, I mean, well, as we said at the time when it occurred, they were so close to an election that it was basically like going into the campaign season in terms of government operations because they continued in place anyway. Exactly. And they know that no government would try and form now um, because of the fact that there's an election due. So it was kind of like, we've got nothing to lose. Let's take responsibility, get the barnacles off this current term and see what remnants of a government could be re-elected, really. Um, I, think, I, think, I think you're right from that point of view. But, and also don't forget, what also I think helped ensure that people didn't really think about the fact about the scandal was that COVID was dominating the entire mm-hmm. scene. And we can't not talk about an election without really mentioning COVID. No. Um, we mentioned a little bit at the top that the CDU seems to be having some problems federally. And in state polls, if their support has fallen a bit, as the vaccine, EU vaccine rollout has encountered problems. The Netherlands is also a part country which is not to no exception. They have also encountered problems. But it seems that Mark Rutte has been able to write above that, even despite the fact that this is right now, he's the prime minister, you know, there's no escaping this. He's, he's the one in charge. How's he been able to do that? No, I think one thing that's really interesting is that quite a lot of the COVID problems that I've encountered is where, and it's happened quite recently with the curfew, is that the courts have stepped in and said, this is not acceptable. So I think, again, he's managed to be able to say, well, I am trying 
to do what I think is best to deal with the pandemic. And it's other institutions that are making this quite a difficult process because we keep having to go back to the drawing board. So I think it's another example of Mark Rutter being able to be sort of the, the manager, not necessarily the visionary ideological implementer in saying, well, I'll be the leader and you can elect me to be the leader because I'm an effective manager of situations. But it's down to other. If other things go wrong, it's another person's problem. Um, and if and if there's certain COVID things that go wrong, well, we're trying, and it's another institution that's that's causing the problem. But you can still trust me to do what I think is best because in the end, you're going to be guaranteed because of the electoral system electing a coalition that is going to involve several parties. I mean, the current one involves four. So he's saying, well these policies we're going to come to some agreement in a coalition agreement but you want someone who's a good leader to be in charge of it so whether you agree with me or not I can do that and then we'll sort out the policies later and I think he's quite effective at doing that. Is that do you think his secret is longevity as prime minister? I think it is I think it is um, because like the 20 the 2010 when he first became prime minister 2010 to 2012 government did not last long it was two years long and yet he came back again, and then he came back again in 2017, and he's probably going to come back again now in 2021, even though his governments over these 11 years have encountered quite a few problems. He's managed to shake them off, get back up and say, I am going to still be your leader, even if you want the coalition I lead to be slightly different, or you don't agree with everything we're doing. How has he been able to not get something to stick onto him? Because I think that is unique, isn't it? Because... I think once you've been in power for over 10 years, if the problems keep reoccurring, okay, you blame the, your previous coalition partner last time, you, you blame the courts, but aren't you going to run out of pe- people to blame and therefore people will make the connection? Well, if your government's still running into problems, isn't it therefore your fault? Yeah, I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, but I, I think it is, I think the longevity of Mark Rutter is remarkable because as I told you just before we started, he is currently the second longest serving incumbent leader in Europe after Angela Merkel. He's been around since 2010, which if you think back to 2010, we're in a completely different political world, particularly if you look from a UK perspective. So what was Brexit? Exactly, exactly. I mean, back in 2010, you had President Obama's first term. Like that's the kind of that's the kind of time period we're looking at. And yet he's still here after the EU has been through the migrant crisis, the Euro crisis, Brexit, now COVID, and Mark Rutter is still sat there. Angela Merkel's on the way out. He doesn't look like he is. You're right. And, you know, I think he's he's helped by the fact that he is able to adapt politically, move from the the far right to the left wing to more centre-right coalition. Yeah, I've got an interesting question for you on Mark Rutter. Do you think the facts, do you think the electoral system and the facts that coalitions are a necessity helps particularly centrist politicians like Mark Rutter and their parties survive for longer than they would, say, if it was a first past the post system? I think it's a very interesting question. I think sometimes, though, even a centrist politician should theoretically benefit from the fact that in PR systems, you can look both to the left and the right. I think what you I think you can't because that in some in many countries parties still form natural allies with each other. So, for example, in Denmark, there's the red block and the blue block, which are very set in stone. The left red block parties all support one the Social Democrats, and the right block they all tend to support Venstre, which is the main centre right party there. So they still form blocks really in many other countries, and. I think only recently in Germany as well, you know, the CDU had long relied on the FDP and the SPD had the Greens. But that arrangement began to broke down as the FDP declined in popularity and the Greens moved much more economically, more uh, realistic and right-wing and therefore became more accommodating of working with the CDU Mm -hmm. so long as the CDU was willing to allow it to achieve its environmental aims. So I think it is theoretically, although centrist politicians should do better in PR systems, 
because of the fact they can look left to the right and in first past the polls, there is benefit of you being slightly to the center right and all the center left. And there's not much room in the center ground as such. I think the reality of coalition politics is that in many other countries like Norway, um, Denmark, as I said earlier, and until recently, Germany, they still tended to form center-left blocks and center-right blocks. It's only been Mark Rutte, I would argue, is the exception to the rule in being able to skillfully stitch a different ideological coalition as it suits him, depending on the numbers he's presented with. And I think what helps politicians like Mark Rutte is this environment in which it's expected that you form a coalition. So even if something goes wrong as a centrist, as you said, you can turn left, you can turn right, and people aren't necessarily expecting you to deliver on very specific election promises because they know that those are going to be up for negotiation in some sort of coalition agreement. I mean, that's something we need to talk about. In fact, this government took 225 days to put together, which was a Dutch record. I mean, that's nearly a year. And, and the intensity of these negotiations means that politicians like Mark Rutter can step back from whatever happened in the election, reassess where his positions need to be, and can negotiate them away in a negotiation that involved this time four parties. Um, all, I think it ranged from the centre-right through to the, a liberal centre. So I think it does help people like him who, because they're in the centre, have slightly more options in terms of what could be palatable. But you see, this is where I think Mark Rutte is more impressive because although you've talked to me about centrist, I actually disagree with that characterization of Mark Rutte. I think he's more centre-right than, than, than you would think. And in particular, I think what has helped is that he has always at the European level been much more Eurosceptic. The Dutch, I think, have a bigger strand of Euroscepticism and until recently, we see them being much more vocal because the British have left. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the Dutch has seen, always been quite fallen in behind the British position in being that slightly awkward partner. And that has played very well in Dutch politics, really. So I think he's more, much more of a centre-right politician rather than a centrist politician. And so therefore, it makes his nimbleness in, re- in that five-year government with the centre-left particularly impressive, I feel. But what I think is really interesting is that, first of all, the Belgians would say 225 days. That's nothing. Nothing, really, uh, at the rate as, as the last two government formations showed. And although you did say that Mark Rutte has got the time to step back, reflect, and re- adjust his position, I would like to gently point out that he took a three-week summer break during the 2017 government formation. <laughs> so, you know, but he still got there at the end. He did, yeah. I mean, so one thing we've been talking about quite persistently, if we take a step back here, is the immense fragmentation that's gone on in the Netherlands in terms of their politics in recent years. I mean, I've got a statistic here, which is the main three parties historically have been the VVD, the centrist liberals, the PVDA, the Labour Party, and the Christian Democrats. In 1986, those three parties collectively polled 89% of the vote. In 2017, they collectively polled 39% of the vote. So like less than half of what they polled just, well, just over 30 years ago. So do you think there's anything in particular that has caused this fragmentation? Or do you think it's just a natural thing that happens in political systems? Because Germany, to a certain extent, has seen increased fragmentation, not to this extent, but but do you, can you pinpoint anything that might might explain? I think this? I don't want to say that the world has become more complex, but I think in many ways politics has become more complex in the sense that people have much more complex uh, policy wishes rather than just a simple economic development. How much money am I getting in my pocket? As we see recently, the rise of environmentalism, and it could be as well as people get more that as you move away from ideology, is that personality-driven politics has also come to a fore as well. So even though you might like, for example, the the centre-left position, but you prefer the Socialist Party leader. So -hmm. therefore, you would tend to vote for a Socialist Party leader, particularly in an era in which the leader of the party is seen as the catch-all, really, for the party itself. So I think it's two reasons. 
One is that policy has become more, there have been much more policy cleavages rather than the usual left-right economics. And secondly, personality-based politics. Do you agree with that assessment, Sam? Yeah, I mean, my my biggest explanation, I think, is the cleavage-based one. And I think also for countries that are member states of the European Union, that's also played a role here. Um, I, I think if you just look at one new party that's emerged, which is Geert Wilders' party, it emerged over differences because he left Mark Rutte's party, the VVD, to form this PVV back in the early 2000s over disputes, at least one of the disputes, was over the European Union. And it's interesting that those kind of cleavages have come to the fore and have have expanded, especially in proportional systems like the Netherlands has an extreme version of this. You can it's much easier for these new either personality-driven parties or smaller cleavage-driven parties to actually make an impact. Because as you said, in order to get into parliament, you need to cross a threshold of 0.67%, which in the grand scheme of things is nothing. Um, And as you burst onto the scene, as these new parties get into parliament, the support for the bigger parties gets chipped away gradually to the point where, as we said, in 2017, Mark Rutter's party won the election with just over 20% of the vote, which is tiny. What I think is very interesting is that um, in his current coalition, this could be just a fun fact, that it consists of the Christian Democratic Appeal and the Christian Union. <laughs> now, I beg anyone to tell me what the difference is between the two. They both have Christian in the name. Speaking of the Christian Democratic Appeal, the, the decline of that party has also been a reasonably strong theme in the past few years, where back, as I said, in the late 20th century, they were leading governments. And now they finished, I think, in third place and became part of the 2017 coalition. So they haven't had a decline to the same extent of the Labour Party. But do do you have any views on why that might have been? Do you think it comes from the emergence of the far right? So the space on the right is, is limited? I think the space of the right is limited and they have suffered from the fact that voters prefer the personality of Mark Rutte and they prefer the personality of Gerd Wilders. Mm-hmm. And the CDA or the Christian Democratic Appeal has lost, they used to have that those kinds of leaders, but they can't find their next Jan-Peter Ballantate, who was their f- last prime minister from 2002 to 2010. They need to fight that personality again to unite, to take away that centre-right vote. And it will be at expense, probably, of the VVD. I wonder whether the, if one party support rise, they're kind of like, it's very difficult for them both to rise together and they tend to take votes off one another, really. Um, yeah, I mean, it should be noted there. It feeds into what you said about if you categorise Mark Rutter and the VVD more as a centre-right party than a centrist party, then really you're looking at two centre-right parties, which probably naturally take votes from one another. Exactly. And let's just look at it since the 2010s. In the last three elections that Mark Rutter has fought, every time his seat go, count goes up, the CDA goes down and vice versa. So it seems to be, although we do not want to imply, and we certainly cannot say that all the CDA voters went to vote for Mark Rutte, it does imply there's some sort of relationship, really, which I think is very interesting. So to finish on, I think, for the Netherlands, a big question that we can both answer. Do you think the Netherlands is a case study of how PR systems and coalition-orientated systems can work successfully? Or is it a case study of why PR might be desirable but doesn't necessarily work in practice? That's a very good question. I think it depends what your barometer is. Because to be be honest, you know, Mark Rutte's been in power for a long time, 11 years. The previous occupant, Jan-Peter Ballante, has been, was in power from 2002 to 2010. That's eight Mm -hmm. years. You know, he won four elections. So... Um, one okay, admittedly, one of his elections took place the year the other. Um, Wim Kok was also quite a famous uh, Dutch politician in his own right. He was in power from 1994 to 2002, and before that was the longest-serving inc- incumbent who served Ruth Lubbers, who served from 1982 to 1994. So actually, 
in terms of prime ministers, the Netherlands has not had that many prime ministers. So yes, although the, the composition of government has changed in each election, it still is one in which the head of government tends to be quite stable, mm-hmm. which I think is a very interesting point. So therefore, that could be an argument of the fact that, that whatever the coalition, um, the Netherlands has a degree of stability baked into it, really. But nevertheless, though, I think over time in the future, PR, the, what PR sets to do could make it much more complicated in a sense that because it might take even longer to form government, particularly in the era in COVID where you need snap decisions, people might get annoyed with that mm-hmm. and therefore might coalesce around something which might not necessarily be a big party because somebody who is a populist might say, look at those lot. We had the biggest crisis in over 100 years and they are still 200, 100 days without a government. So therefore vote for us. Yeah, and it appear and and that is a very dangerous message moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with your assessment, and I think, I think it's an example of how it does work in practice, especially because I think forming coalitions and cooperation on the political arena is something that the Dutch are quite used to. So in environments where that's it's expected, like the party who wins the election is probably going to be in the government but they're going to have to speak to other parties who might not even be on the same sort of ideological level as that party. So I think it's, it's, it's almost expected that these people are going to have to cooperate. But I think one thing that, as you said, might prove to be a problem, and I think this is where the potential fix lies, is that I think because the electoral threshold in theory is so low, it just helps fragmentation ferment even further. So I think if I were to put my constitutional Netherlands hat on, I'd say I think we need a higher electric. We need we can continue with the same system, but we need a higher threshold because we're now at the stage where the government has four parties in and it doesn't even have a majority. So to look at a system where you're going to have five parties in a government, that just doesn't seem workable to me. I I agree with that assessment, um, but that is something in which uh, for another day, another discussion, but we can't end election previews as we have done without trying to make a few predictions. <laughs> now, I'm afraid you're not going to get any credit much if you say Mark Rutte's party will become will be the first place because, well, although we've been burned a few times, a la Italy, we're pretty sure that's likely to happen, isn't it, Sam? Yeah. And I think we will have a follow-up podcast where we looked at what his potential options should be. But if we look at some of the other big players we talk about, the Christian Democrats, the Labour Party, Gert Wilder's party, the Greens and such, how do you think they would do? Yes, so I think it's no surprise to say that I think Mark Rutte is going to win this election. Um, I think he's going to probably finish in the high 30s in terms of seats, so a moderate increase on last time. Then I think... The rest of the parties, I can imagine sort of staying in a similar sort of arrangement, at, at least the, the higher tier ones. So like Get Vilders' party, I think, may get about 20 seats again. Um, and then I think the Christian Democrats will again finish in third place, um, probably on a similar amount of seats, if not a couple less. And then that's at the expense of the Labour Party slightly increasing on their performance from 2017. But I think in the grand scheme of things... The, the rank of parties and the potential coalition options on the table might not be too different. No, actually, I, I kind of agree with you like that. I mean, Ruth's party finished in clear first. I think Valdez will finish in second. CDA third. I suspect the Democrats, 66, probably have done just enough to warrant fourth over the Labour Party. It would mean, though, that if you want this current government to continue, it could be a lot more stable because it naturally would mean that they have more seats in the House. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could make government formation that little bit more easier, particularly given the formation, um, the urgency of it. But yes, I agree that um, in those order, the the parties will will finish in. But mm-hmm. you know, we don't have to wait long, Sam, do we, to find out the outcome of that one? No, we don't, because as we said, the election will be taking place in just over a week's time, between the fifteenth and seventeenth of March, and we'll be bringing you analysis of the of the results after that 
Anyway, yes, I think we're looking forward to seeing what happens there. Definitely, and we will bring it, and we are eagerly anticipating the results ourselves. But that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week, where we will be, as promised, diving into the politics of Australia following the results of the Western Australian state election in advance of a possible election in the second half of the year. As always, we will continue to bring you up to date in the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at, at Bella underscore talk. And you can leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han. And until next time, we will speak to you soon.